If you will, take your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. Brother Eric and I talked a couple weeks ago, and I've been trying to get into the book of Revelation. Uh, we'll probably start a series here next week. We will. Uh, uh, we may just go through the first three chapters, or we may journey all through the Bible. I know that we'll take one or two detours along the way. I hope that you can be here. Revelation chapter 1. Vince Lombardi. That's a name everybody knows if you have any interest in football. Vince Lombardi, for the uninformed, how few you may be, is a Hall of Fame NFL coach and former NFL executive, and he was the coach of the Green Bay Packers in the 60s. Great acclaim. He won three championships in three years. He won five championships in seven years. The story is told of Vince Lombardi that in 1961, he walked into the training camp of the Green Bay Packers. Now, they had veterans. They had rookies. Those guys had played football 10, 12 years to be where they were or more. He walked in and he did this. He held up the football and he said, Gentlemen, this is a football. Now, did he have to tell them that that was a football? No. What he was conveying to them in those kind of iconic words is that if we're going to be successful on the football field, we have to get back to the fundamentals. We have to get back to the basics. Because what Vince Lombardi knew, and those guys knew, if you get away from the fundamentals, if you get away from the basics, you're going to wind up losing out and giving up. Honestly, just to bear my heart to you today, there have been times in my pastor in years that I have felt that I needed to stand before congregation and say, brothers and sisters, this is a Bible. The Bible is our guidebook. In the Bible, you will find the origination of the church You'll find Jesus, you'll find the gospel, you'll find the answers for life, you will find everything you need. You'll find the plan for the church. Now, you know what the plan for the church is? It's on the bottom of that sign, the great commandment and the great commission. You see, we're to love one another. We're to love God with all our heart. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we are to grow, listen, we are to grow in faith, in knowledge, and in action. And in action. The truth is, is that we are God's plan. And the action that we take is we become disciples who make disciples. That's Christianity 101. Become a disciple who makes a disciple. In other words, saved people 
help people who are unsaved become saved and follow Christ as a disciple. Now, Brother Jerry, why is this so important to take our time this morning? I didn't think you'd ever ask. It's because of this truth on the screen. Everyone exists throughout eternity somewhere. Everybody exists throughout eternity somewhere. How long has it been since you thought about that? How long has it been since you meditated on that? How long has it been since you thought about that in light of your family? We say we love our families, and we spend more time indoctrinating them into the things of this world and then instead of indoctrinating them into things of eternity. Make sure they like the right team. I, I, I gotta, when I pull that football out, I got a grand from a number of them because it's an old Miss football. It's got Hugh Freeze signature, and I could tell who the Mississippi State people were just like that. We indoctrinate our kids, make sure that they go right and do right, but do we really consider, when it comes to our families, do we consider the eternal consequences? When we, we think about our friends, we think about our neighbors, how long has it been since you really thought about that? Man, everybody's going to be somewhere. And you go, what's the big deal about that? Here's the big deal. Here's the next statement. Jesus said, I am the only way to a home in heaven or to the Father. You see, without Jesus, what these folks profess today, without Jesus, the place that you spend eternity is not a place you really want to go. And whether it's your son, your daughter, your in-laws, your outlaws, your neighbors, everybody is headed one place or another. And folks, we are the sacred holders of the truth about Jesus. And if it's true, if this statement is true, and it is, then we are holders of the sacred chalice. And if people in this community, in this area, are going to find their way into an eternity called heaven, it's up to us. We're, we're the ones holding it. And you know what? I believe that the community is waiting on us. Let's, just, let's take some real personal questions today. Let's just think about some personal things. Honestly, in this 180 people, did I get that close? 191. In this almost 200 people, I dare say that we have tentacles into every home in this area. We... All of us know someone. We know people who go to other churches. That's cool. Who know the Lord. That's cool. But we know the people that don't. And they know us. This is not an accusation. This is an examination. Here's the question. If they know us, and they do, for the cause of Christ, for the kingdom, for the gospel, is that good or is that bad? 
for what they know about us. What do they think about us? When they think of us, do they, do they see Jesus? Do they sense Jesus working in our lives? When they drive by this campus, what do they think about this church with all these wonderful buildings? And What do they think? Do they think, oh my goodness, I hope this church never goes away. The community will never be the same. Or do they don't even register with them? Are we indispensable in this community? Are we the ones that the community looks to? Maybe the internal question is to really ask, as a congregation, do we believe that we actually have the answers for time and eternity? Do we convey that? Trying to explain what's going on in my heart is kind of like herding cats. A lot of action and little progress. It's hard to communicate it. Most people genetically, traditionally, generationally conceive the church as simply a place to periodically attend feel good about myself, but not with too much fanfare, and certainly I'm not going to let it change anything I do out there. Without apology, I'm telling you today, there is more at stake than we think. There's more at stake, and we shouldn't just be centered on a, a, a comfortable, maybe semi-comfortable pew, good music, and a Sunday message. I'm not trying to disrespect you if that is your concept, but here's what I am going to tell you. If that's your concept about church, you won't find it in this book. This book calls us to something deeper and wider and higher than we can even imagine. Jesus didn't just die for us to sit in a comfortable building to enjoy fellowship with one another, and to eat an occasional good meal. Jesus died to give us life. Jesus died to give the church life. She is his. She is his. She's his building. She's his body. She's his bride. And he left her, us, to complete a mission. And you can't complete a mission until you start on the mission. Most of us see the end of the Gospels when Jesus gave the Great Commission as Jesus' last words to the church. But it wasn't. That was his last words before his ascension. But now we get to the first three chapters of uh, uh, Revelation. And I want to kind of give you a 30,000 view, 30,000 foot view to fly over and see how this effect affects us. Lord willing, and he doesn't change me again, Eric. We will start in Revelation 1-1 next week and kind of unpack at least the three chapters. If you have your Bibles open to Rome, to, excuse me, I say Romans, Revelation 1, 
I'll ask you to stand, and we're going to read a little bit in chapter 1. We're not going to read all three chapters, so you can stand for a minute. If you can't stand, it's okay. The first verse says, The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I'll pause there several times just to tell you some things. The word revelation means the unveiling, the display of Jesus Christ. That God gave him to show his servant what soon, what must soon take place. He made it by, known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, whatever he saw. Now, if you will, scoot down to verse 9. I, John, this is John the apostle, this is John the disciple, your brother and partner in the affliction. In the day he wrote this, they were under intense persecution. Partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Christ in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I'm going to pause there to tell those who may not know, remember from Sunday school, John had been exiled to an island by himself called Patmos because of his belief, because of what you're doing today. He was exiled. So now let's pick up. Watch this. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What a great place to be. And I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I, that's John, then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man. Dressed in a robe with a golden sash around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a fiery flame. His feet were like bronze as it is fired in a furnace. And his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He held seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven church. Most people believe that was the pastors. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I just pray that today, that as we point back to the very basics of what you want us to be about, 
I pray that our hearts will be open, our minds will be open. We'll hear from you. We'll hear your voice as you speak to us. If someone doesn't know you in a personal way, may today be the time that they know you. If someone's drifted away, may today be the day, the time that you call them back. Speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to unpack the basics. When you get to the basics, it's not big, it's not long. I want to do it in three words. The first word is the foundation. That's what we see here. The foundation. The foundation of anything is the starting place. If you notice, when you drive in this morning, our sign is gone. Because we voted to put an LED sign out there. That new sign is going to weigh a lot more than the old sign. It's going to weigh 1,100 pounds. And we knew that we had to make sure we had a firm foundation for that 1,100 pounds to sit on. And so they did work this week. Now, don't get excited. It's not coming in next week. Probably if we get it in by Christmas, we'll be fortunate, but we'll get everything in place. But it's the firm foundation. When you build a house, you want a firm foundation. Jesus ended his Sermon on the Mount talking about foundations, and he talked about the guy who built his his house on the sand and the guy who built his house on the rock. That can be a physical house or that can be the house of your life. What we are building on. Certainly it can be the church. What we are building on. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul makes the point that there is no other foundation to build on than the foundation of Jesus. When I've, that, those scriptures that we just read, he started off the revelation of Jesus. What I want to tell you is that that is the foundation. If you don't have Jesus in your life, you're not building your life on a foundation. You're building your life on the sinking sand like the foolish man. The, the truth is, is that when I read this, when I get down into verse 10, I'm just telling you, I'm going to try to remain Baptist and I'm going to try not to have a fit, okay? I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Do you know that's where we should be? In the Spirit on the Lord's Day? God's people needs to be together on the Lord's Day in the Spirit. It's an unbeatable combination. Spirit, the Lord's Day. You know, I'm going to say this to you, and if it offends you, go home and drink a glass of warm milk. It's still true. God's people need to be in the house of God, hearing the Word of God, preached by the man of God, and the power of God every time we gather. And you see, that's called Commitment. And you go, well, Brother Jerry, what's the big deal about that? Well, let me just, I didn't think you'd ever ask. He was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, right? And he heard the Lord's voice. Sometimes we don't hear the Lord's voice because we're in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. Sometimes we don't give him enough of our life, so we don't hear his voice. The very foundation of a Christ-centered life is built on the foundation of Jesus in the place that you're supposed to be at the right time so you can hear him speak to you. If we're going to make any eternal difference in our community, if we're going to make any 
any difference in people's lives, we got to start right here, the foundation. You look at verses 12 and 13, I love this, is that Jesus is seen walking among the lampstands. You know what that means? It's about to get very apparent. It means that he sees what we're doing. Now, I will unpack it in days to come. But with Jesus and the Spirit, when Jesus and the Spirit are with and in the redeemed, it gets to be an exciting prospect. It's not about as good as music is. It's not about music. Choir, praise team, when it, that's good. It's not about men's ministry. As good as that is, it's not about that. It's not about women's ministry. It's not about something else. It's about Jesus. And if it's about anything except Jesus, it's built on shifting sand, the foundation. The second thing that I'm going to bring to your attention, this thing of basics, is what I will call the function. The function. Now, we have plenty of here, plenty of... Um, Words here in chapter 2 and chapter 3 to talk to us about how the church should function. In other words, how the members of the, those who make up the church should function. We have it here, the good, the bad, and the ugly. There are seven churches listed in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. We read the names of them. Are we like any of those churches? Hello? Well, we should be. Well, let's remember this. Five of the seven churches, five of the seven churches were given this message, repent or else. In fact, Vance Havner has a book laying on my desk on the, on the seven churches, and it says, repent or else. That's the title. Let's just look at them. First of all, think about Ephesus. Ephesus was a good church. Did a lot of good stuff. I'm not going to do this for every one of them, but I am here. If it, in chapter 2, he goes, I know your works and labor. I know your endurance. I know you cannot tolerate evil people. You've tested those who call themselves to be apostles and are not. You have found them. I know you've persevered and endured hardship. It even says down at the bottom that they have, that they have abandoned the ways of the Nicolaitans. And by the way, the Nicolaitans were that group of people who were born by Nicholas. Nicholas was listed in Acts chapter 6, one of the original seven. And he got to where he liked to lord this position over everybody. And so now it become a big deal. Here's what I want to tell you, is that Ephesus was doing a bunch of things right. And then he says, I just have one thing against you. Just one thing. You're doing all this good stuff. You're giving to the cooperative program. You're streaming your, your services. You're trying to do a few things. But I have one thing against you. You have left. You have lost. You have abandoned. You have deserted your first love. What was their first love? Jesus. Go back into... Uh, uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and see where Paul started. And, and their first love was Jesus. They did a lot of stuff because they loved Jesus. They burned books because they loved Jesus. And now, they were still doing a lot of the good stuff, but now it had the wrong motivation. Motivation means something. 
Well, if I, people don't know why I'm doing it, what does it matter? Well, God knows why you're doing it. Then you can look next at Pergamum and Thyatira. I know I skipped this morning. I'll come back. Pergamum and Thyatira. These two guys, they were trying to do some things right, but let's just put it in a nutshell. They were compromising the truth of Scripture. And any time you compromise truth of the Scripture, it will lead to immorality. And it did both places. Then you got Sardis. <laughs> I don't know if you've read Revelation 3, 1 through 5 or 6 and read about Sardis. Sardis would be a great 21st century American church. They had things hopping and popping. They, they had the greatest ministries. They had a reputation in town that all was good, and they got to believe in their own press. They just thought things were going good. Their reputation was, man, that's an alive, vibrant, man, that's a great church. Jesus said, you've got a reputation of being alive, but the truth is, you're deader than a doornail. And what you have is not going to last long. You see, folks, we get our eyes focused on the things of this world, and we forget, we forget that 90% of what we do in the next 24 hours will be gone in 30 years. Sardis. Then you slip all the way down to Laodicea. Laodicea, you know, if I give you one word that describes the Laodicean church is this, comfortable. Now, we like comfortable. Boy, don't, George Warner, Barner wrote the book back in the 90s that mess with a lot of things in the American public, but don't mess with their, don't mess with their recreation time. Don't mess with their comfort. Laodicea was comfortable. They went out of their way to make sure everybody was comfortable. They, did, they thought they were rich. They thought they had everything they needed. They didn't think there was anything that God could give them that they didn't already have. They thought they were good, Pud. And you know what Jesus said? You make me sick on my stomach. I don't believe it says that. Well, old King James says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Next, it may have been New International says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Finally, one of the later translations accurately interpreted that word. says, I would vomit you out of my mouth. And for those in the medical profession, the word is emesis. Makes him sick on his stomach. Then you get to Smyrna. I can go back up to Smyrna in chapter 2. Smyrna was under intense persecution. And what Jesus told them said, hang on. Hang on to what you have. And hang on and be faithful until death. You know what that meant? There were some people going to die for their faith. You hang on till death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Then you get to Philadelphia. It's the only church that there was nothing negative said about them. And it basically is the same. Stay true. Stay faithful. Remain committed. Jesus' words to these seven churches offer us help if we will hear them. Now, sometimes we really don't want to hear them. 
But Jesus is painting these pictures. To, he's sending these letters to them, and he's painting the pictures for us. Because he wants us to know. Are you listening? He wants us to know what it means to be great. I believe, I have a deep belief in my heart that God wants every church, that means every Christian, every Christ follower, to be great. The issue is, great is an objective word. Great means different things to different people. Great in the eyes of man is different than great in the eyes of God. Today, when somebody mentions a great church, we think big buildings, many members, uh, influence, prestige, money, historical importance, programs, and maybe even a well-known pastor. You compare that to the first church. And here's what I will tell you your, your summary is. Where we are great today in 21st century America... They were small. Where we are, where we are small, they were great. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus told the disciples, the church, he said, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You're going to receive power. You're going to get great power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. In Acts 4, it says, With great power, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. Great power. And then it says, Because of that great power and those testimonies, they were given great grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. And you know what? If you follow it over, you know what you'll understand? Because the people were personally filled with the Holy Spirit of God, they developed a great fear. Oops. A great fear. Two times in chapter 5, it talks about them having great fear. One time I know in chapter 9, it talks about them having great fear. I don't think we're supposed to fear God. Here's what I'm going to tell you. You better fear God more than you fear man. You better fear God more than you fear man. Because you're going to listen to who you fear. You're going to follow who you fear. The basics, the foundation, Jesus, and and we're in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The function is that we come, we get great power when the Spirit takes us over. That leads to great grace through our lives. That leads to great fear. We literally become, listen, are you listening? A God-fearing people. We have lost the fear of God. I don't apologize for preaching the fear of God because you just need to know I personally am so afraid of God. I fear God so much that I'm afraid to be unfaithful. 
And you go, you afraid he'll slap you around? Listen, if you're really walking with the Father, your biggest fear may not be that he puts his hand on you, although he could do that. Your biggest fear may be that he takes his hand off of you and leaves you on your own. Dear Lord, don't ever take your hand off this church. Dear Lord, don't ever take your hand off my life. Dear Lord, don't ever take your hand off the people here. We can function. The last part of this is the, is the faith. We talked about the, talked about the foundation to function, the faith. Faith is the key. Faith is the key. The foundation of being in the Spirit on the Lord today begins with faith. Chapter 3, Revelation, verse 20, is one of the most familiar passages that we know. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him We'll dine with him and he with me. For years we have taken that verse and we've talked about Jesus standing at your heart door wanting to get in. And I'll not argue that case. In fact, there's a picture. I just want to put it up here. Jesus standing at the door. You see, he stands at your heart's door wanting to get in, wanting to come in and forgive you of your sin, wanting to give you a home in heaven, wanting to reconnect you with God, wanting to give you abundant life here on earth, wanting to give you eternal life one day in heaven, wanting to do that. You already know this, but notice the door. You don't see a doorknob. There is no doorknob on the outside. He's standing at your heart door and he's knocking. And the only way the door opens is if you'll open it from the inside. That you hear his voice. That you reach and you take your action and open the door. Faith opens the door. Your faith, your personal faith. If you've never done that, in just a moment, I'm going to give you a chance to respond and open the door. That's certainly one way that this scripture, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, has been interpreted. But for our purposes today, I want you to think about this. Jesus has just spent almost two chapters in the Bible writing letters to seven churches five of whom had to repent. And at the end of that, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Could it be that the church, the organized church, has put Jesus out and he's standing at the door of the church trying to get in. 
very basics today. For the church and for individuals to have a way of life is a life given to him in faith. Built on the foundation of Jesus. Functioning by the priority of Jesus' words. Walking and living in the Spirit. Because we regularly open the door and let him have his way. I don't know any other way to more clearly say what has to happen. Are you willing to open the door of your life? Are we willing to open the door of our church? Let's pray together. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If the Lord's spoken to you today and you know that he's at your heart's door knocking, trying to get in, would you open the door? Would you pray, dear Lord, please forgive me of my sin. Please come in. Please take control of my life. Give me a home in heaven. Give me abundant life, full life here. As you continue to pray, pray for the church. Are we really living and walking in the power of God because of the Spirit of Christ is here? altar's open the altar's open if you need to do business with God you come if you'd like to trust Christ I'll be glad to talk with you about it if you'd like to unite with this church you'll come we'll start the process With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, would you stand to your feet? Everybody just stand. Continue to pray. And I ask you to do that because there may be someone next to you who is on the verge of a decision. Is God speaking to you? Please don't put it off. Please don't delay. Please respond right now.